Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Amy Strauss, author of Pennsylvania Scrapple. Amy Strauss, author of Pennsylvania Scrapple, A Delectable History. When you were writing this and you told people you were writing a book about Scrapple, what kind of reaction did you get? Um, the initial reaction, I would say, is you would. So many people have said to me, if you, like, if I were to predict the first book that you would ever write, it would be a book about Scrapple, which I feel is an endearing comment and also proves my quirkiness. Why? Well, I've always been very adamant about talking about my Pennsylvania Dutch heritage. So um, I was raised in Berks County, Pennsylvania in Bartow, PA. And so I always just really celebrated the foods of that. And while, while I went to be a food writer and write a lot about the Philadelphia fine dining scene and things of that nature, if I ever had the chance to write a sort of testimonial about my upbringing, I always incorporated some fun stories about eating pig stomach slash hogma, if we want to talk traditional terms. And then also I always made and still to this day, which is coming up, uh, false knots with my family uh, for Fat Tuesday. And so I just had a big part of me that I always celebrate Pennsylvania Dutch culture. And so when I had the opportunity to write a book about Scrapple, I just felt as though I was giving my people, you know, the credit. Well, when you talk about Pennsylvania Dutch food, what at all does that encompass? Well, I would say that it encompasses the foods of the Pennsylvania... Um, I would say Philadelphia suburban rural communities and it goes out to Lancaster County etc and it really talks about the wholesome dishes that you know stick to your ribs classic cooking that has remained unchanged through the years it's not overly seasoned it's not overly fancy it's just beautiful food that is slow cooked and really filling and sticks to your bones <laughs> so when you wanted to write this book how'd you start out what'd you do so initially, I, the fun part about the whole book experience was I always have to say that I wish the idea for the book was my idea, but the publishing company had actually found me on Twitter. They found me on Twitter because, like I said, I like to talk about Pennsylvania Dutch food, particularly Scrapple. So when a, I would come across a restaurant that was doing something really fun with Scrapple, I would go on social media and blast that restaurant and say, this is amazing. Um, so the publishing company had actually been looking for a Philadelphia-based writer to write a book about Scrapple, and they did some digging on me and you know my writing history and the articles I had wrote in the past about Scrapple and other Pennsylvania Dutch foods, and we continued the conversation, and now we, here we are. It happened. So. <laughs> so did you did you interview people or do uh, research? How do you um, put a book like this together? So it really is a like thinking of writing a book is a very daunting experience, especially for one topic. Um, so I really wanted to do the 
whole culture and making of Scrapple justice. So I broke it down into different categories. So I definitely wanted to talk about the history of Scrapple, how it came to America, how it became such a sensation, particularly with the Pennsylvania Dutch people, and then, you know, spread into, you know, common culture of the area. And then I also wanted to be sure I talked about small town butchers, mass producers, chefs, taking it nowadays and making it something new again. Um, and then I even got into some of the weird, quirky stuff of people using Scrapple for things you don't eat, which gets crazy. Um, so I wanted to leave no Scrapple territory unturned. And I feel as though through that process, I actually learned so much more than I ever could have thought. I have so many facts about Scrapple that in my head floating that now I can just sit for hours and hours just busting them out for people and it may reinforce my quirkiness but I'm happy to be that person. How widespread can you find it? I mean if you go to the Midwest or the, the South or California mm -hmm. do you find Scrapple? You know that is such an interesting um, phenomenon about Scrapple is so it's been able to thrive in the Philadelphia area and you know skirted around Pennsylvania and it will go as far north um, to the edges of New York but you won't commonly find it in New York and then it will go as far south as into Delaware and Maryland what's interesting is if you go to Delaware they definitely claim Scrapple as their own and there's a big rivalry between Delawareans I don't know if that's word but and um, Pennsylvanians because they're they have their mass producers down there, such as Rapa, which, fun fact, Haberset, which is such a big Philadelphia scrapple, is actually produced now in the same facility as Rapa in Delaware, which I didn't mean to drop that bomb to everybody, but they are produced differently with different recipes. But that's why I think Delaware has been able to thrive so much and find it as one of their own because they have mass producers down there commonly selling it. Where did it start? So it started in the, in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia. That was one of the first quote unquote sightings of Scrapple. A lot of people tend to say that the um, composition of Scrapple itself was found when the Germans came over and you know were starting to settle in that the Philadelphia region and they were marrying the prosperous corn crop of the Native Americans with the German sausage making. So you had all this available corn that was then becoming cornmeal, and then you had all the techniques of German sausage making, and together, um, especially when they first were coming to this land, and you know the crops weren't necessarily super prosperous at the time, they were developing new um, ways, of, ways of eating the meat and you know sustaining them through winters, so they would combine the cornmeal into the meat into a meaty porridge and then make it into loaves. And it was able to sustain the families for, through long winters. They would eat Scrapple in the morning and then, you know, they would be able to be fine and full until dinner time. Do you find any version of it in Europe? You know, there is a lot of variations of Scrapple uh, in Europe, you know, especially in the German territories. And in any culture, even in the South, they have, you know, different sorts of mush that you could comp compare to Scrapple, but nothing is identically, you know, prepared, eaten as Scrapple is.
Why does it have a certain reputation among some people as something you don't want to eat? Yes, and I, I always, I personally think it's because of its name. You know, it has the name scrap and crap, like baked into it. And I think that, you know, immediately with a name like that, I mean, the original name is Panhas, but the common name now is Scrapple. And I think that just already discredits it. Like people are like, oh, I don't want to eat something with scraps in it. And then also the misconception that there's just so many nasty bits of pork within the loaves of Scrapple that I think gives it a bad reputation, so as it is. But a big part of Scrapple is it was one of the first slow foods. It's a real food, a slow food, and that is so much, that is like has so much respect now in the sustainable culture of society. And if you were to like go to a grocery store and pick up the pack of Scrapple and read the ingredient statement, it's everything you recognize. You know, you'll read like, different cuts of pork. It doesn't say something crazy like pig eyes or pig brains. What people think is in the composition, it just isn't that way. So I think that because there's so many misconceptions of what actually goes into Scrapple and people actually think they're eating disgusting parts of a pig, which no part of a pig is disgusting, but um, I think that just sets it off on the with a bad rap, so as it is. It doesn't have snouts and ears and hoofs and things like that? No, but people love to say that, everything but the oink. And honestly, uh, regarding the pig's head, there are so many great pieces of meat on a pig's head, including like the cheeks that have such great flavor that butchers, especially some in Philadelphia now, are so passionate about utilizing the parts of the head they can that they even will boil the head in the first original broth and composition of Scrapple because it gives great flavor. And then they obviously don't grind those parts up and we butchers and producers don't grind up bones either and that has another misconception as well. For someone who has never had it, how do you describe it? Oh, okay. So I get, I get asked this question a lot and I get really excited because I think of Scrapple as something that it doesn't need an explanation. If you like pork, if you like bacon, which everybody loves bacon, unless you're a vegetarian, and so if you think of it as like, do you like the flavor of porky dishes, then you will have so much fun with Scrapple because it's a textural playground. I mean, it's crunchy on the exterior and creamy on the interior, and then it's so rich and decadent that what is not to love? Um, so I think that I always feel as though if you're going to introduce someone to Scrapple for the first time to, you know, no need to over explain it. Just let them experience its deliciousness for themselves. Is there such thing as good Scrapple and bad Scrapple? Um, there are a lot of opinions on that. I would say that one thing about Scrapple that should be known is everybody has their favorite. They have their favorite brand. They have their favorite condiment for it. They have their favorite preparation of how they like to prepare it. And since writing this book, I have gotten many uh, emails of people I do not know telling me how they like to eat their Scrapple. So people do have opinions that there's better or worse. Some like it a little bit more spicy. When people are making it, they'll add a little bit more seasonings than others. Some like it cooked harder and crispier than others. And so when you say, uh, is there better or worse way? It just all depends on the person that's enjoying it. You know, they'll say it's not good if it's too mushy, or they'll say it's not good if it's not seasoned enough, but it's really to the eyes of the beholder. Do you have a favorite way? 
my favorite way, I'm, I'm pretty much a purist. I like it um, pan fried and crispy on all the edges. And I like it a little bit uh, on the edge of overly crispy, but I do, I always need my creamy interior. So I definitely need it very much crisps on the outside. And I do like it in different forms, such as fries, scrapple fries or scrapple balls. I mean, the world's your oyster. Uh, do you put anything on top of it? Do you, um, ketchup, You know, syrup? I am a big ketchup supporter. I know that that might be sacrilegious to some, um, but I do love apple butter, particularly Bauman's apple butter made in Sassmansville, Pennsylvania. It's one of my favorites, and it just, uh, the sweetness works really well with the rich saltiness that I get from Scrapple. Do you need to have it with eggs or can it just stand well, on its own? I think that if you have it with over easy eggs and then you cut the yolk, the yolk acts as almost a sauce for it and it's just a great combination. How do you make it? How do you make it? So. There are, I mean, there's one general way how to make Scrapple, and it starts with taking the uh, either head or pieces of meat and boil it, boiling them in a broth. From that, you know, the meat will fall off, you know, the bones that you're, the big pieces of pork that you're cooking it with, the meat will fall off the bones, and then you, you want to really keep that broth because you will use that to make your meaty porridge. But a lot of people, after they boil the meat parts in the broth to create the broth, they will then, you know, use one of those strainers to pull out the pieces so you can pick the pork pieces off because you want to then grind that. So then you have this beautiful porky broth and you have these meat pieces and then you grind them and put them back into the porky broth and then add different flours. It, it ranges between the, you know, producers, some like, Definitely like the cornmeal. Some like to include buckwheat. Some like to include whole wheat or white flours. And then you add different seasonings like coriander, and you let it, you know, meld together as in it as it were an oatmeal. And then once it's at the consistency that you like, which a lot of people at this point will taste it with a spoon and be like, mm, I need a little more salt, or mm, I need a more pepper, etc. Um, and then you pour it into pans, and then you chill it. You know, you could chill it overnight. Um, a lot of people make scrapple in huge quantities, so then you know they freeze it for X amount of times. How long does it last if you just put it in the refrigerator? Um, the standard is about seven to fourteen days. Mm -hmm. Do you make it? I do make it. I actually have a, my best friend's family has been making, and I wrote about them in the book, uh, the Schwank family. They have been making it for years and years. So every year they make about 300 pounds per batch. So it's a huge production that you start at 3 a.m., you start, and you're there to like 1 p.m. just, and the whole part of like, like pecking hens, picking apart the meat off the bones, like it's a whole experience. And so I tend to typically, my scrap on making is solely with that family. Um, I do, I did provide a individual loaf recipe in the book that will allow you to easily make it from home. And I have done that as well um, by, you know, testing that recipe as well. But I definitely keep my scrapple making to, you know, insane amounts. <laughs> 300 pounds? Yes. Just for personal use? It's or? just for the family. And the most insane part about it is there's a wait list. 
because the family is very big. There's a lot of members, and there's a lot of offshoots of family, so friends, you know. Uh, but people love it so much and love the recipe that they will get their, you know, mm, sort of year supply of Scrapple from this Scrapple-making day. Do they closely guard the recipe, or do they um, distribute I it? I mean, I would have to say I don't have the recipe published. <laughs> but uh, they're pretty open. It's a lot of... Um, They've been making it so long, and I found this also from small town butchers that I visited, that they've been making it so long that it's just like a natural, like, oh, we add about this much of flour, or we, oh, we add about this much of flour, oh, we add about this much, you know, it's more like piecemeal as you're making it along the way. And what I found really interesting was you never know, I mean, you have the general idea of how much meat you will get off the bones, um, and you like weigh the, pork parts before you boil them to create the broth but then you never the the poundage of pork that you're putting into the scrapple does vary from time to time so you might have a little more flour and a little more seasoning etc you refer to it in your book or you you put quotes around the phrase that there's a certain demand for the crudest of all pork products yeah i mean that was a quote because i wasn't saying that i it was just <laughs> i would never uh speak of Scrapple's name in vain. <laughs> um, but yeah, it has that sort of reputation because people think of all the nasty bits are going into it. So people think it's a very crude and disgusting um, product out there on the market. Was it ever that? No. And I think that I, through all of my research and all of the history, I really wanted to know where the misconnotations and misconceptions of what the, this being this crude product really was, but I really couldn't find the one person that really sparked it. It just like, it was like whisper down the lane that just continued through generations. You say in here that cultural legend states that George Washington possessed a fondness for Scrapple that lasted a lifetime. Yes, he did. He did. Well, doesn't that make you feel great knowing <laughs> that? <laughs> and it's very interesting to know that there's so many passionate people about Scrapple beyond the Pennsylvania area that they have, they get it mail ordered to different parts of the country on a regular basis. Um, Hatville Deli in the Reading Terminal Market, he says his shipping business is so popular among expats that have moved since from this area that they need to get their Scrapple fix, which I think is a kind of endearing thing. And there uh, was actually a producer um, who started on the West Coast up in the Oregon area that it's called West Coast Scrapple. And he's from this area and his family would always be making it because they can't get it out there, which is such a cool thing. Like, you suckers, you can't get out there, but we have it here in <laughs> Philadelphia area. But uh, And then they just produced it in a variation that was more West Coast, a.k.a. leaner pork unless that went into it. Um, but, and the fat usually just comes from when you're, you know, cooking down the pork, you know, you're not really removing the fat pieces. So that's why there may be some fatty bits within your scrapple. Uh, but I found it interesting that, you know, they felt so empowered to want to give the West Coast their own version of scrapple. Um, and they do relatively well. Why Philadelphia and not other places? I mean, German immigrants went to lots of different cities. And other, and it has, Scrapple has, you know, spanned if, as, like, different, you know, immigrants have gone elsewhere. 
uh, I mean, like not ripple effect, but you'll find pockets in the Amish community down south that have Scrapple, you know, et cetera. But, you know, I really think the fact that we have such great soil for corn in this region and we're such a big corn uh, producer, I would say, like grower, um, that it just became so popular in this area and so easily to achieve because when you're, you know, raising your livestock, I mean, everybody had pork and pork was such a popular livestock, you know, to have around here. But I think that just from there, it became easily attainable versus other regions. So is it eaten in the Philadelphia area regardless of ethnic group? I mean, yeah, everybody eats it. Everybody does eat it. But you will, what I found interesting is the people that are most passionate about it are the ones of the Pennsylvania Dutch culture or the ones that were raised since they were little. So, you know, I'm now at the age of 32 and I have met friends who have not tried Scrapple before. And, you know, they'll try it and be like, oh, it's not bad, you know. But the people who were raised with it and it's a part of their flavor and memories are the people that really have such passion for it. Is it as uh, cut across uh ethnic and cultural groups as much once you get outside of Philadelphia to, or is it like Lancaster County and Berks County is it mostly Pennsylvania Dutch? Most, mostly Pennsylvania Dutch and Amish. Yeah. How does it mm -hmm. spread in one area and not spread in another you know, area? It's really interesting but I think that uh, I'm gonna make a joke here but <laughs> the Pennsylvania Dutch folks are really set in their ways like their diet I mean has especially out towards the Lancaster County areas like their diet has remained um, minimally changed through the years, which I feel is a testament to the culture itself. What was the great Scrapple correspondence of 1872? Oh, of, oh yeah, I love this. So uh, this was one of my most fun facts that I discovered while researching the book. So in the late 1800s, there was a gentleman from the Philadelphia area, and this just reinforces how much Scrapple is very re a regionally specific food. And so he had moved to New York City, and he couldn't find Scrapple. He and his wife had always ate it for breakfast. It was just always in their fridge. So he wrote into the New York Times to a letter to the editor to say, you know, I'm spending so much money on different meats and different steaks to eat for breakfast, which he was eating very hearty, apparently. Um, and I'm just spending so much money doing that. And I used to eat Scrapple, and it was such an affordable way to eat, you know, start your day. And now I can't find it anywhere. So if anybody else would like to see the recipe and share in my passion for this breakfast meat, I will have my wife share it with you. And it was interesting because he gave himself the name Epicure as a little fun pseudonym. And then his wife, so then all these people wrote into the New York Times to say, we must know what this Scrapple is. Please provide the recipe. So then the wife uh, followed up and provided a recipe that was very endearing to the point that she called herself good lady of the house. And she had said, get yourself a, a good pig's head, you know, one from your country butcher and things of that nature. And she provided the recipe. And then for two weeks straight of... Uh, Folks wrote into the New York Times. The New York Times was hijacked the letter to the editor section of people very interested in this Scrapple dish. And uh, they were hilarious. Like there was a phys physician, that was his name, who was warning people not to eat it every day because it's maybe not good for your health. And there was somebody recommending to take out 
the pork part of the pork part of Scrapple entirely because it would be you know better that way. And then they there was like even some not vulgar but people writing I. I shall cut your head off, like referring, and they called their name like a pig's name. It would just got a little crazy, but it just showed that even in the late 1800s, Scrapple had the power to become viral, uh, even before going viral was a word that was used. <laughs> did, did anybody, did, when you told them you were writing this book about Scrapple, just say, all the time, all the time, and. I have gotten used uh, to anytime I speak out about the book or Scrapple that, especially on Facebook or, or Instagram, there will be um, many uh, puke emojis used <laughs> and people saying things of, you know, gross, leave it to you, like, I don't need any of that. And so I think it's just hilarious that, um, you know, people are so passionate about expressing that they don't like it, that I just feel more inclined to try to get more people to like it. Now, you are a food writer? I am a food writer. Mm -hmm. How does one get to be a food writer? So I went to college for journalism and also communications at Arcadia University, which is out in Glenside, PA. And my first internship, uh, I, I am very happy that I had this experience where um, I was interning at the Philadelphia City Paper, which is now, um, you know, it doesn't exist, but it had holds a dear place in my heart. It was a weekly alternative newspaper in the city. And I had went to an intern interview, and she said, you know, we only have an opening for, uh, in our food department. Are you up for the challenge? And I was like, yeah, I love food. And it's just funny because that was uh, 2006, which so much of the food culture has changed since 2006 so like then you know there were light blogs out there but not really people were still very much you know still on the edge of picking up you know it was about to you know decrease but people still picking up the newspaper still caring about you know they weren't everything wasn't online and so the culture of food <coughs> and food right sorry food writing itself has very much change but and you know instagramming your food and things of that nature but it was a great time to join into that and then from you know working in the food section there i just continued to write about food through magazines working through different publications and just continue to tell a story and i've always stuck very closely to philadelphia i mean i've traveled all over the country writing about those food cities um but i've always come back here and i'm just still like there's no place i'd rather be is there something, you, you, when you were doing this, you were running with a kind of a high, a fine dining crowd? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which look at me now, writing about Scrapple. Who yeah, am I? <laughs> the contrast between the fine dining and sort of Scrapple. Yeah, there's such, it's high and low brow. But what's interesting, it, so I have wrote about very frou-frou, white tablecloth, very, all the foie gras. I always like to compare Scrapple to foie gras. They're two totally different things. But, I mean, uh, and I, there was a one, uh, I apologize, I don't have his name off the top of my head, but this one local historian who was saying, if you would have slapped another name onto Scrapple, perhaps something, you know, like foie gras, something with pate in it, you know, it may have a different reputation, you know? So I found that anything can be high-end. I mean, 
as long as the right people push it there, you know? And I'm not saying Scrabble will become high-end, but there are a lot of restaurants, including those in the city right now, that do serve Scrabble in a more elitist way. And um, one of the fun facts that I discovered while writing the book is I was talking to a gentleman who lives in the city, and he had went to D.C., and it was a high-end restaurant in D.C., and on the menu, and he was raised in the Port Richmond neighborhood of Philadelphia, he would go every Saturday to the diner with his grandfather and eat Scrapple. And when he went to this restaurant in D.C., on the menu was Lancaster County Scrapple. And it was very much high-end variation of Scrapple. And it, they charged roughly $15 for it. And he said it was very much similar to what he would pay a dollar for at a diner around here. But you can make, as long as the chef like takes it and execute it, executes it in a way, that, in a high-end way. Scrapple has a place in a high-end restaurant. What are some of the creative ways you've seen it used? Yeah, so uh, there is a restaurant down in Delaware uh, near the beach, Rehoboth Beach, called Heirloom, and they've made a chicken scrapple, and they topped it with different uh, hen of the woods mushrooms and a, and a beautiful cream sauce, and you know, and it's just like this beautiful floral dish and you wouldn't even maybe know Scrapple was under there and it was a beautiful thing. And then in a restaurant here in the city, Double Knot, they make um, little steamed buns and they put a little square of Scrapple on it and then they top it with hoisin sauce and pickled um, jalapenos and, and, it, and radishes and it's just like an Asian inspired dish that's just delicious. And this isn't too far out but uh, local chef at Johnny Brenda's, he made uh, scrapple balls where he, you know, as he uh, he made the batch of scrapple, and rather than pouring it into a pan, he did scoops and then froze them, and then to service, he would throw them in the deep fryer, and then he served them atop um, a hot pepper jelly, and they were just like, you just like eat them, and it's a fun bar food, and it's just like a fun experience that if nobody, if especially for someone who hadn't experienced Scrabble, it's just a creamy ball of joy. Is it ever called anything other than Scrapple anywhere? Um, I mean, I, I had mentioned this earlier, in very traditional royal communities, people do call it uh, Ponhas, which is a Pennsylvania Dutch name, um, and there's lots of word, var uh, spelling variations of that word, but typically... And some people have thrown the word pate on it in some sense, so they are definitely serving scrapple, but it's a pork pate that they crisp along the edges. Is it related to polenta? You know, it has been compared to polenta, but I do not know specifically if it dates back historically to polenta, polenta but it does have similar characteristics. Yo, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, because you're just throwing pork in there, really, you know, in different seasonings, so. You write about a, a vegan um, scrapple? Oh, yes. So there are several, not just one, um, vegan producers of scrapple, and they've made it their mission to make a scrapple that is made with all non-meat products and make it taste like the traditional pork variation. And the one, um, Russian Pepper USA, they're out in the Westchester, PA area, they were raised on Haberset Scrabble, and then they wanted to create a variation for vegans. And then there is a chef uh, in the area at Triangle Tavern who his the uh, mushroom scrapple outsells regular scrapple two to one on the brunch menu. And all of them, 
all of the producers date back and say they're trying to recreate the taste they enjoyed when they were younger. Like I said, the whole flavor memory, but they're just making it without the meat in it. Which, I mean, you know, I have tried vegan scrapples and they are not bad. So I, I am not against them doing that. I was just spreading the scrapple love, you know? And you write about a scrapple beer? Uh, yeah. So Dogfish Head uh, Brewery, they, uh, a couple years ago, they were thinking, because they're known at, they like to make off-centered beers for off-centered people. And they are known to put some really quirky things into their beer. So a while ago, they had made, because they're close to Rapa Scrapple, so they had made a Scrapple beer, and they used a lean Scrapple so that there would be no grease on the top of the stout beer, which is like, obviously it's something you don't want, but the fact that they thought about this. Um, and it ended up being a beer. It's, it was a variation of something that they already had made, the chicory stout, and now it's called, uh, it became a beer known as Beer for Breakfast that is actually a mainstay beer. It went from just being a release in their pub to now being a long-term part of their portfolio, which is it's a, you know, pretty cool thing for beer. Have you, ha have you had it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, honestly, I have to admit, the Scrapple aspect of it is very subtle. That if you didn't tell me Scrapple was in there, I might not know, but it's cool to know. And I mean, similarly, there is a Scrapple Vodka, which uh, Painted Stave Distillery out in Delaware as well. I guess Delaware people like to put Scrapple in their beverages, but uh, there's it's the vodka, they make it with a local producer. They won't tell you who, but I'm pretty sure it's Rapa. I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> um, but it, the vodka is infused and distilled with Scrapple in it, and they add different sage leaves and things, you know, that are we would find in Scrapple. And um, it is a great addition to a Bloody Mary, you know, because the savoriness, I mean, I know that people have made a bacon vodka, and people recommend that for a Bloody Mary, but, like, the Scrapple one is a little more subtle and less artificial because they're making it with real Scrapples, so it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Are you also a beer critic? Yes, I write a lot about beer. Mm-hmm. And so I was very excited to morph my two worlds together. <laughs> yeah. So what do you write about beer? What's, what's interesting? So I am a contributor to Philly Beer Scene Magazine, and that magazine covers the greater Philadelphia area um, with a strong beer focus. And so for that, I have covered, what's interesting is I have covered a lot of the beer cities. So we do a feature in every issue where we kind of encourage beer vacations because so many people nowadays will travel for food, but they will also travel for beer. So I've gone to a lot of great cities, including Miami, which is a very young beer culture with craft beer scene. They only have, you know, in living in this area, we have a new brewery popping up every, you know, month. And out in Miami, they're still, you know, at like 10 to 12 in the entire city. So it's been really cool to really find, you know, a young scene and really write, tell the stories of their breweries. And so a lot of my coverage tends to be, you know, why did this person start this brewery? brewery? Why are they making these beers? And what has inspired them? Do you have a favorite style of beer? Yes, I do love the IPA which I know there's IPAs everywhere right now. People are just killing it with the hops, and maybe too much so, but I do love a good, I find them very refreshing. What do you think about sour beers? You know, I like sour beers, but in moderation. 
I think that there's only so much sour I can have before I just feel it as though I'm killing my palate. But I do respect what people are doing with sour beers, especially with the incorporation of fresh fruit. What do you think of the, the beers that experiment with like with chocolate and peanut butter or strawberry beer or all, going I far feel, and wide on? I feel as though brewers nowadays are very much like a mad scientist. You know, like so many of them are like, okay, what has someone not done yet? And let's put that in a beer. And so that could err on being a gimmick, you know? But I think it's, it keeps things interesting because people, you know, want to seek out those interesting experiences. And I think that everybody wants to try the next greatest thing or something they haven't tried before. So I think it's a testament to the culture of craft beer where they're always, it's constantly growing and exploding and so I think brewers are doing that and I do have a uh, friend who has made it a mission to sample every peanut butter chocolate stout out there so he is the number one review like he's a reviewer of peanut butter chocolate stouts which I mean everybody has to have their own thing you know mm. what do you think of peanut butter chocolate stout I think that there's some good ones and I think there's some bad ones mm -hmm. when you go into a restaurant to mm -hmm. to evaluate a restaurant for the first yes. time what what do you look for that makes you go wow or eh? I think that uh, there's a lot of different pieces that are important I think immediately when you walk in the atmosphere the aesthetic of the place is just you know will cat if you go into a restaurant and feel as though the space isn't welcoming or you're caught off guard by it you know you already have a bad connotation of what's going to happen in that restaurant experience and then also immediately how the service treats you and then when you look at the menu the i like to find not too crazy but just interesting things you know something that catches my eye that ooh, that chef really put his heart into that dish do restaurant owners know who you are? I mean, this being on this program notwithstanding, is your face recognizable in that world? Yeah, so yeah. they know to be on their best behavior. If you're yeah, there? I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say I'm a Craig LeBan, but I do have a lot of um, friends in the food scene, and I have met a lot of chefs. So I'm known in the sense because I've done a lot of work, and so I do have. I don't necessarily get special attention, but you know, I do have. A dish sent out to my table here or there sometimes. Mm. Are you a good cook? You know, I wasn't a good cook for a really long time, but lately I've gotten better. <laughs> and I've uh, I've tapped into the whole Instapot craze. I don't know if you're interested in that, which doesn't prove you're a good cook. It proves that you like to uh, expedite your cooking, but still I've you know, I'm very interested in trying new recipes. I'm very interested in hosting friends over uh, for different gatherings, and I always like to have a fun spin and theme to it, so. Now, when, when you were writing this book, did you go a lot of places and sample a lot of different types of Scrapple to get uh, a, a range of oh, that I did. world? I have ate hundreds of Scrapple dishes and <laughs> variations, yes. I did a lot of research, and I made some serious I know I track some serious mileage, um, but I still, you know, after trying interesting variations, goat scrapple, chicken scrapple, turkey scrapple, just regular old different pork scrapples, I still enjoy the classic. You know, I still enjoy just 
a simple slab of crispy slapple, uh, scrapple <laughs> um, with, you know, just some apple butter or ketchup, whatever I'm feeling that day. When you, if you do a side-by-side -side comparison of the, the haversett and, uh, and um, Rapa, Rapa mm -hmm. and the other commercial scrapples, can you tell the difference? Oh. And do you have favorites? Oh, absolutely. And an interesting experience. So my, I was raised where I always had a Haberset scrapple available or um, lo our, the local butcher shop at the time was Brooks Meats, so they had their own scrapple. So those were the ones I knew growing up and I'm pretty familiar with how they taste. But, and as is my family, but when I recently went down to the Scrapple Fest um, down in Delaware, at w right outside Rapa's headquarters, they had uh, Scrapple sandwiches, just a slab on two light pieces of bread. That's all it was. Um, my dad bit, bit into it and he's like, whew, that is spicy. And it wasn't even their spicy um, variation because they do a lot of like hot like chipotle inspired ones just the regular and it was just way more seasoned than the varieties you get in pennsylvania which i thought was kind of interesting and then i bit into it too and i had had rapa before and i was like oh you're right dad they do put way more seasoning in this which is not a bad thing he actually now buys a lot of rapa and he lives in the still in pennsylvania area he really liked it but it's just when you're so used to eating a less seasoned variety you're like wow this is crazy and then there's uh uh, uh, Hatfield, that's oh, the name I was Hatfield. trying to remember, Hatfield. Oh, which Hatfield, I mean, their history um, of how they, they've received a lot of attention because they tapped in to the clientele that they knew would help them succeed within the Scrapple market. So, for example, um, Oscar Meyer, they wanted to sell Scrapple. And so they weren't, you know, necessarily from the area. And so they were trying to tap into the success of Scrabble that so many were doing, were succeeding in, um, in the 50s and the 60s, that they tried to sell Scrabble then. And then they took it all over the nation and they were trying to sell it elsewhere, but they couldn't sell it because people didn't understand it and they felt as though there was too much of a learning curve. And Hatfield never felt so ambitious to try to take it to like Chicago to sell it. They stuck to the area, to their hotbed, um, Pennsylvania regions and they've done well with it and you can still find it successfully to this day and a similar story comes in with Dietz and Watson I had the opportunity while writing this book to do a long tour with them with the CEO and he had told me that um, their recipe has remained unchanged for years and they've you know they coined themselves as Philadelphia's number one or best scrapple you know and he even to this day says of all the products that Dietz and Watson makes and Mama Dietz and has made such amazing things, he will to his take Scrapple to his grave. It's his desert island food and he loves it so much and they have their own Scrapple room. It's just like a cool, unique thing. Now you mentioned that uh, Haberset and Rapa are made in Delaware now. Mm -hmm. are, They're actually owned by the same company. Are any of the others still made in Philadelphia? Yeah, so Dietz and Watson still produces in Philadelphia. Um, and then you get into the suburbs for the other, I mean, we have Godshaw's, that's out in like the, I believe, um, I think it's Telford area. And then you get out that way as well for like Hatfield, et cetera.
-hmm. You write about uh, festivals people can oh, go to yes. to enjoy Scrapple. One is the Kutztown mm -hmm. Festival. The Kutztown Folk Festival um, happens every year beginning around the 4th of July time frame and it's just a great celebration of Pennsylvania Dutch food. So you can go there and get a Scrapple sandwich, a fried bologna sandwich. Uh, you can get an uh, apple dumpling, and it's just a great opportunity to enjoy it. But they also have a scrapple-making demonstration, and that is linked to old-world butchering. So you'll see a pig being slaughtered and butchered right in front of your eyes, just like they did in the olden days, which, I mean, you, there is a lot of respect for how they used to do it, and I think that's like a cool sight to see. And you'll get that similar experience as well at the Gasha Hoppin. Uh, folk festival which happens out towards um, uh, Frederick which is also like on the edge of New Hanover Gilbertsville and PA and they celebrate the culture of you know Pennsylvania Dutch people but then the craziest uh, I would say of Scrapple Fest is the one out in Delaware outside of Rapa where they do things such as um, the skillet shot put where females are encouraged like it's a competition to see how far you can throw a skillet um, and then mayors and uh, councilmen do a scrapple sh shot put as well where they throw bricks of scrapple uh, and then they award little miss scrapple princess too so it's a huge celebration of just really quirky weird scrapple situations and the lines i mean i was there and the lines were insane just to get like a simple scrapple sandwich People coming out of the woodworks. Are there festivals that have uh, scrapple comp making competitions? You know, um, in right in Philadelphia at the Reading Terminal Market, they have a scrapple fest biannually. And while they're not making the scrapple from scratch, they're making a scrapple dish so that all the vendors within the Reading Terminal Market compete to produce the best scrapple dish around. And a lot of them have been like crazy compositions with like chutneys and like different sauces and different variations of a po' boy and some you know some classic with waffles and so they have a lot of fun with it and a lot of people come out to the point that I mean even if you go on a Saturday when all the tourists are there at Reading Terminal Market it's already busy but at Scrabble Fest everybody's packed in there like sardines. Do you like Scrapple sandwiches, or does that bread just get in the way? I think the bread just gets in the way. I mean, I'm not opposed to trying an interesting variation of a sandwich where that Scrapple is on, but I just like it so on the side so I can just like slice into it whenever I need be. Did you in, visit a lot of individual butcher shops while you were doing yes, this? Yes, and there's so many um, different butcher shops that, you know, they have a classic you know, recipe that they always stick to. And some will incorporate, you know, beef and pork. Some uh, will follow a recipe that they have done for generations, including uh, Dietrich's Meat Shop out in Crumbsville near Kutztown, PA. The mom, very similar to Mama Deets, but a small, on a smaller scale, Verna, she's in her 80s and her son still to this day, it started with her, and now it's her son's. We'll taste every single huge cauldron of Scrapple to make sure it's on point. So I think that's pretty cool that they're carrying on the tradition by their taste buds. The individual butcher shops were forthcoming with letting you come in and see how they oh, do it. And, yeah, and yeah. the funniest thing, they also, and a lot of them were out towards, that I visited, were out towards the Lancaster area as well. And the thing about it is, they're like, you want to learn about Scrapple? <laughs> 
you? And, and I said, of course, like, you know, because it's part of their daily routine, you know, that's just what they've been doing for years. And um, the one in particular, uh, Stoltzfoot's Meats, he had said that, you know, he, he has done the exact same thing as his dad has done for centuries, except maybe their equipment's gotten bigger because they produce more. But the biggest thing he called out was, you know, there's something to be said about Scrapple that it's been able to sustain itself for generations and other dishes that have came on board, like head cheese and things of that nature, hasn't been able, like companies have clothes that specialize in those type of things, but Scrapple's been able to stay around. And he quoted, um, it must be the hipsters, <laughs> which in, and he was just saying that what you want younger generations to enjoy a dish like Scrapple because it will help keep it relevant. And I thought that was like a really great thing that he, being a Lancaster County, he's very, you know, modern age, you know, like being a Lancaster County butcher, knowing like the young people are sustaining my business. And he said that he continues to this day, to this day to have an increase in sales every year from Scrapple, which is pretty cool. He actually also said he tried variations such as maple scrapple, which makes sense because some people enjoy maple on their scrapple, so it kind of works. But it, it's like that always undersells except the classic. Like people just want the classic. What is it about scrapple that appeals to hipsters? Hipsters is, are more adventurous eaters, I would say, and they're always trying to try the next best thing or to eat something that they can then brag on their social media that they're eating. They're like, oh, man, look at this scrapple dish or look at this, uh, you know, Scrapple slice, have you tried this? And, and to get a response, it's such a response-driven culture that I think that that helps Scrapple. I mean, a lot of people say to me, do you think that it's becoming more popular than ever? And I don't necessarily find it more popular than it was five years ago when the whole uh, nose-to-tail movement was alive and well because that really helped Scrapple's case because people, chefs in particular, were being uh, more encompassing of every last piece of their animal animals that they were butchering in-house and like trying to use every last part of the animal. And so I think that that has really helped Scrabble, but I don't see it being more popular than five years ago, but I don't see it being less popular either. The, the nose to tail, is that the same as a whole animal yep, meal? Yep. You write about that. Can, yeah. If someone has not been to one, what happens at a whole yeah. animal meal? So there are a lot. And now it's interesting because um, I would say like five years ago in food writing, uh, whole animal slash nose to tail dining was a buzzword thing, just like farm to table dining and sustainable dining too. But in a sense, whole, whole animal eating is where chefs will order in, you know, order a whole pig and they'll butcher it up and serve it in multiple ways on their menu. So example, Kensington Quarters, they're really, uh, they used to have a butcher shop in front of house, but you can still order some of their meats independently. But they make Scrapple because it's a way to, they carve up the pig and then they have the head and different pieces. And it's a way to use every last piece of an animal because they're great. They provide great flavor. It's great pieces of meat. You shouldn't just discredit them. And that's something the Pennsylvania Dutch did centuries ago. And so they are just making every, making use of every last piece of the animal because they can. I mean, making even making lard 
that they'll then use to cook in their pans. It's just um, developing a finer respect for the animals that you're carrying in your restaurant. You say in your book that Scrapple was served at the first Pennsylvania Society dinner in New York in 1899 at the Waldorf, and, mm -hmm. uh, and the Pope served it. Yeah, how cool is that? And the Pope um, was here recently, uh, and they had included Scrapple in one of his breakfast dishes. I don't, I'm not sure if that was per request from him, but I'm going to go ahead and hope so. <laughs> what other Pennsylvania Dutch foods are your favorites? Well, I am such a supporter of Fossonauts. I only have them once a year, and for people who don't know Fossonauts, they're basically a potato risen donut um, that is deep fried, and then you can eat it just so, but the yeast element of it, because you, ri you raise the dough overnight, uh, is just so powerful and delicious it's like a it's not overly like a cake donut it's more like just like a bread donut and you can sprinkle it with um, a little powdered sugar or dip it in molasses and that's just like my ultimate favorite pennsylvania dutch treat i also love a good shoe pie, shoe fly pie um as well as funny cake which is like shoe fly pie with just chocolate on the bottom what do you think of moon pies I like moon pies, but I can't say they're my favorite. Are they your favorite? <laughs> I have no opinions. No opinions. <laughs> um, have you ever, or did your family ever make sauerkraut at home? Uh, yeah, and my, we pickled a lot of things. And so we made sauerkraut, and uh, we made mustard beans, and we would pickle red beets. And then we, after we would eat the beets out of the pickled jar, we would then put hard-boiled eggs, and then have red beet eggs. Which is a great flavor on the egg, just saying. When you make sauerkraut at home, do you have to have some place to put it far away from people while in, it's doing its thing? Yeah, and usually um, they're stoneware. Usually you have like a stoneware crock, and you usually keep it in a cellar or a basement so it can stew away, similar to, and ferment. And what I think is really cool is so many traditions like sauerkraut, um, and like Scrapple, I guess you could say, are being continued on. I mean, fermentation is such a big performance and people love to make their own pickles now and things. So I think it really is cool that people are making their own sauerkraut and people are making their own kimchi. When you, when you get the cabbage going, mm -hmm. does it just sort of happen and then you come back a couple weeks later and it's sauerkraut yeah. or do you have to do something? Um, and it's similar to uh, hard apple cider. So, yeah, so you, you know, prepare it with vinegar and the seasonings, the sauerkraut, whatever you prefer. Like, there's different variations. And then you put it in the crock and you cover it up and you check in on it. So you let it sit. Like, the beauty of a lot of these fermentation, you know, dishes like sauerkraut are because, you know, you're just letting it, you're preparing it and letting it sit. And then in a couple of weeks, you can enjoy. But then you also, like, you have to keep track of it because if you let it go too much, you don't want it to be too vinegary, you know? You pointed out a couple examples of restaurants incorporating Scrapple into fine dining. Do you, are anybody doing that with the sauerkraut? You know, there are a lot of restaurants that are including sauerkraut within their dishes in some capacity, but I can't speak to that, which, like, the dishes themselves. But, yeah, I think that sauerkraut are and pickled trays like nowadays you can go to a restaurant and get a whole pickled bowl of red beets and other very varied pickled products and sometimes sauerkraut makes it in the cut. 
So if someone's watching this and they've never had Scrapple, uh, make a recommendation to them. How do they if, proceed okay. from here? So if you have never had Scrapple, this is what you got to do. I'm not going to encourage you to make it at home because that might be too challenging. So go to your local diner because the local diners have been doing it for decades and they know what they're doing. It's a, a, a local diner experience is a good thing and make sure you order it extra crispy because that will ensure you don't have a mushy loaf that wasn't, you know, sizzled enough on the flat top and just say, you know, I would like a little apple butter if you have that or a little ketchup on the side, but eat it plain first and then the world's your oyster. And then after that first crispy bite with the creamy interior, I mean, you'll be hooked for life. Uh, if people want to read your writing besides this book, mm -hmm. where do they find it? Yeah, you can find various uh, articles and different stories I have written on amystrauss.com. And I also post regularly um, that links to all of my social media as well, which links to new relevant articles that I have wrote. Now, mm. you uh, said this is your first book. Yes. What's the experience like? You think you might want to tackle another one? Yes, I'm actually working on my second book. Mm-hmm. But not about Scrapple, but everybody should be really excited. <laughs> is it about Pennsylvania Dutch food? Um, it is not, but it, it does uh, reflect lots of culture and historical information about Philadelphia and its food scene. Well, we'll keep an eye out for mm -hmm. that. Our guest mm -hmm. has been Amy Strauss. She is the author of this book, Pennsylvania Scrapple, A Delectable History. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.